0: Welcome to the Lapsus Lima Podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, I'm David Getson. Happy 2017, and thank you all for staying with us through this long gap over the new year. Keep your eyes on our feed for upcoming news on the Building Beauty Programme a hands-on architectural master's degree course to open this year in Naples, Italy. The school's program was inspired and approved of by Christopher Alexander and will be led by Maggie Moore Alexander and Sergio Porta and others, whom we will feature on the podcast soon. It is welcoming new students now, so please feel free to contact them via... Hello at buildingbeauty.net and also visit www.buildingbeauty.net for more information. Last time, we examined Louis Sullivan's explication of a plastic iterative process for organic architectural form. In today's episode, we will walk through the mirror to revisit Expressionism, the organics. Odd fraternal twin. With this in mind, please head over to the piece of glass that is nearest to you, whether it be a window pane, a computer screen, or a drinking glass. Does it have any special character? Does it seem expressive? Does it have any bubbles, color, texture, or distinctive shape? For many of you, the nearest glass may be something that's often not thought of as such until it breaks, the optically and functionally invisible touchscreen of a smartphone. How often does it occur to us that glass is a frozen liquid? At room temperature, it would take about 10 million years to optically deform, It starts life flowing much more easily, and then captures the shape cast for it. With a material so conducive to taking on any shape we can think of, what does it say of our imagination that we use it almost exclusively to make clear rectangles? Without intervention, glass typically takes on color, too, if anything clarity is the chemical state most difficult to achieve. Cistercian monasteries in the Middle Ages that used clear glass, eschewing the polychromatic stained glass arrays favored by their Benedictine peers, did not choose it as a sign of austerity. To the contrary, it was almost a luxury, like silver plating the light that entered your chapel in our two houses series on the early bauhaus we explored how gropius considered glass to be the building material of the future even though in 1919 he stuck to wood in that same year a colleague of his bruno taut had felt confident enough to publish works that had been previously shared in secret only amongst a group ominously lone as Die Gläserne Kette, the glass chain. As architectural commissions remained stagnant at the end of wartime, German architects circulated ideas and reconnected through chain letters, exploring utopian notions and using pseudonyms. Gropius's codename was Mass, meaning measure. Finsterlin went by Promet. Hans Hansen from Cologne was Anti Schmitz, or Counter evoking the image of breaking through old sedimentary layers and clearing away dross. But Taut, the leader and proponent of the chain, went simply by the alias Glass. Many of these architects had known each other well before the war participating in the 1914 Deutscher Werkbund exhibition. But if the tone of that expo had been one of artists pragmatically conjoined with industry in order to deploy attractive, albeit sensible, expressions into everyday life, the war set these minds on another track entirely. Five years of sacrificing lives in a ceaseless struggle to attain military breakthrough brought a temporary reverie of imaginary buildings, far removed from the Sachlichkeit, old and new, the materiality that reigned before the war and after. Conspicuously absent from the glass chain was the novelist and poet Paul Scherbart before his death in 1915 he had conceived of futuristic cityscapes beheld from airships and written poems for the glass pavilion a work that taut had featured in the 1914 exhibit the latter's 1919 publication alpine architecture a utopia echoed many of these neo-romantic sentiments In the words of historian Matthias Schieren, Taut projected the utopia of a complete reconstruction of the world in the spirit of empathy, a serious attempt to flesh out the architect's moral claim of being capable of altering life, indeed, nature herself. But though many of Tout's forms evoked those of flowers, plants, crystals, or even shapes approximating living alien forms, Shirin's own description of this work is in fact the mirror opposite of what we have been designating as organic architecture. In the organic, Sullivan, or even to a cautious, rudimentary extent, Malevich, attempted to begin with a single base, or a void, from which a shape, the outcome of which would be defined by interaction between context and genetic impulse, would grow. It is worth noting that, too often, a conflation is made between the organic, the biomimetic, and the expressive, In the understanding of and argument for architecture, to tout, the war-torn landscape was completely redefined by overriding impulse, not by morphogenesis or through biomimicry's fawning citations. At the crux of architectural expressionism, Kandinsky's sense of inner need of which we spoke of at length in episode 21, comes to the fore. At the margins of an illustration plate in Tout's book is the light gray brush calligraphy of a cavernous temple interior with dwarfed human figures going in. He includes engineering notes, but shaping the words to embrace the building also following the quote from Schierbart's Münchhausen and Clarissa, a story merging a notorious liar with a well-known wanton. Speaking is not permitted in the temples, but you can always enter them even at night. Yet nothing corresponding to our church services is to be found here. They take effect solely through their sublime architecture and through the great silence, which is interrupted only from time to time by delicate orchestra and organ music. A few magnificent cosmic paintings and sculptures are occasionally to be seen, but that which is to be made visible is shown ever more rarely because it cannot be brought into harmony with the overwhelming feelings of universal reverence when details and definite things are alluded to too often. The scene is one of transfiguration, the expressionist's promise of redemption in this case, through architecture. The plate, which you can see on our website, does look like something out of an overly ambitious Jim Henson movie. But something even more provocative was being hatched in Berlin, Hans Pölzig's Grosses Schauspielhaus interior, built at the same time that Taut's book was written actualized the vision of what a cavernous theater could be. Contrary to popular belief, however, Tout wasn't just seeding clouds with his glass architecture. The fact that grand ideas were being enacted at the sublime scale of Peltzig's concert hall didn't mean that he would shrink at the bounds of what was then thought possible. As with Bauhaus masters such as Feininger and Kandinsky, Tout's expressionism instrumentalized the work of art. Born of the creator's imagination and taken by the beholder to go within himself in order to reach new levels of experience and awareness, it functioned as a trigger. Theo van Doesburg would famously challenge artists to opt between the functional rigor of assembly lines and kitchens, and a freedom that would risk being left on paper. But while this dilemma resulted in Mies burning all his Expressionist work, Tout was that rare 1920s European architect who would further solutions that were both more daring and less clearly discreet. Join us as we take modernism's red pill next time on Lapsus Lima.